Well, good morning. For those of you I haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Michael. I'm one of the associates here, and it's good to be with you this morning. This morning we get to hear from the majestic 20th chapter of John's Gospel. John, in particular among the Gospel writers, is so very intentional with his imagery, and he rarely uses or leaves out a detail without great purpose. Now, John's 20th chapter was originally his last chapter. The 21st chapter has been roundly accepted as an addition years later, which is a whole other conversation to have sometime. But this means that this passage was intended to be the last one, and it has a lot of importance. This is where he leaves his readers originally. The church recognizes its importance in our three-year cycle of Sunday morning readings called the lectionary. This is one of the few readings that we read every year and doesn't change, which means you're going to hear this exact sermon in a year's time. Just kidding. We are meant to reflect every year on Jesus and Thomas's exchange here. Thomas the disciple who has, unfortunately, in my opinion, been called the doubting disciple because of this story. There's so much material that John had to work with, and this is what he says at the end of our reading. So why this story? Why end originally on a story of a doubting disciple who is reconverted? I would suggest it's because John is challenging us. We, the church, and we as individuals of the church, are meant to make a place for doubt in our faith. The church has not always been hospitable to doubt and questions. One woman who I got to know pretty well because she came on an Alpha course a few years ago told me a story about being kicked out of Sunday school as a child because as the teacher told her parents, your daughter asks too many questions. So what is the place of doubt in the church, in faith? That's the question that John tackles in the second appearance of Jesus from our reading this morning. But he prepares us with the events of Jesus's first reappearance in our reading this morning. This is where, if we have eyes to see it, we'll find John retelling for us the whole of the Christian gospel. So let's dive into the first part of our reading first and hear how John recapitulates for us the good news of Jesus before we move on to the question of doubt. Get out your bulletins, we're gonna follow along. He begins by describing the scene that his, uh, these disciples are in. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. This is the context. John, in referencing the first day of the week, is recalling the opening lines of this whole gospel, the whole 20 chapters. In the beginning was the Word. John invokes creation. But the first day, he invokes the chaos of creation to evoke the chaos of the moment. Dead Messiah, bloodthirsty authorities. And what's more, Mary Magdalene, of all people, has finally cracked, thinking Jesus is alive. The sense of fear and darkness is thick. Evening inside, doors are locked, and right in the middle of this chaos is the people of God, the gathered disciples, which so often serves as a shorthand in the New Testament for the church, the gathered disciples. 
This is the beginning of recreation. Now for us, this is where the gospel begins. The beginning of a life of faith in Jesus starts in the darkness, in the chaos of recognizing that we are unable to make sense of the world or our purpose in it, or our longings for things to be made right, for beauty, love, justice. And so often we find ourselves accidentally or intentionally on the other side of these things. The beginning of the gospel, according to John, is a recognition of the darkness that we are all in. But then, shalom. Like the candle that is lit in a pitch dark room, our passage promises order out of chaos. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Peace, shalom, wholeness, joy, purpose, and relationship with the Lord of creation, and therefore, order. The Lord who made the world, including the materials of the doors that he just ignored, thank you very much, proclaims peace, restoration to the gathered disciples, his fledgling church. For us, the God of creation knows us, knows you intimately enough to know when you are holed up in isolation, whether physically or emotionally. When we are surrounded by darkness or when we are controlled by fear, he still sees us. God shines his light into our darkness and the darkness has not overcome it if we would only accept and believe it. Do you find yourself this morning in a place of darkness? How might you need to hear the words that Jesus proclaims to his disciples? Peace be with you. And then Jesus tells us about sin. Surrounded by these pronouncements of peace, Jesus shows them his scars. He brings the disciples face to face with the reality and cost of sin. Not only the sin of the world, but a vivid reminder for these disciples of their most shameful moment deserting Jesus on the cross. This is the central truth about the gospel, that our sin, even our most shameful moments, do create distance between us and God, and certainly between us and one another. Grief is born in God on the cross, seen in his eternal scars, even as sin is defeated by Jesus on the cross, for us to be able to be restored to him. There's a story about uh, St. Teresa of Avila, and the story goes, you, you know, you never know about these stories, but the story goes that the devil appeared to her in the likeness of Jesus to try to deceive her. She recognized the devil right away and dismissed him immediately. And upon his leaving, he turns over his shoulder and says, how did you know that I wasn't Jesus? And she said to him, you had no scars. A Jesus without scars is not the Jesus of the gospel, because that is where we find ourselves. And yet, faced with these scars, hear the disciples' strange response. Jesus showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They were glad to see Jesus and his eternal wounds, because it's Jesus and he does not shame them. Rather, he leads and ends with peace. 
For us, Jesus no less holds his hands and his side open to us, inviting us to recall our greatest failures, shames, and brokenness, whether in the past or now. Perhaps the reality of our decisions continue to linger in the world, but Jesus surrounds each one of us with peace and restoration, relationship, forgiveness. And then John tells us about sending. Sending, which is no less a part of the gospel. We are sent. Now only the power of God, the one creator of the world, could forgive and restore in this way, which is why Jesus breathes the breath of life again into his disciples this time, so that we may go out and breathe it into the world, pervade the world with his gospel. Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. The gospel is for the whole world, and through us, that's where it is headed. Only God can forgive, but normatively, only we can go out and tell about forgiveness. Pronouncing peace to the world requires that we point back to the scars that are on display in the hands of a God with his arms wide open to us. So let us receive John's encouragement and Jesus's empowering. Who are we telling about the peace that is on offer from the creator of the world? How are we telling about the place in the scars of his hands inside of Jesus that we have? To each one of us, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. This is the gospel that John has been telling for 20 chapters, and it is a recapitulated version of the good news. Now, if I'm writing this 20-chapter gospel that John writes, I'm ending it right there. A concise story, both true and allegorical, that leaves his reader with a powerful distillation of the good news of Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves about the importance of including this funny little story about Thomas, the disciple. He used more words on the story about Thomas than he did in this gospel presentation itself. So it's got to be pretty important. Who is the disciple who has been so often dubbed Doubting Thomas? I find that we tend to cast him more in the mold of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, where each one of the characters has a trait that is always true of them. Grumpy is always grumpy. Sleepy is always sleeping. Sneezy is always sneezing, which I can relate to here in early spring. But that is anything but true of Thomas. He doesn't speak much in the four Gospels, but he gets the largest platform in John's Gospel. He has two previous statements, and both are amazing and powerful. In John 11, when Jesus plans to go back to Jerusalem to see his dear friend, Lazarus, who had died, everyone sees the folly in this plan. They just tried to kill you there, Jesus. Why would you go back? But Thomas says to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we might die with him. This sounds more like doggedly faithful Thomas, not the doubting disciple that we've all come to know. Chapter 14, Jesus has just sent Judas on his way, and he's told his disciples that it is better for him to leave and send the Spirit. A confusing proposition indeed. Jesus says, I will come again, and you will know the way where I am going. Thomas responds, Lord, we do not know where you are going. 
How can we know the way? You could build a rich spiritual life of following Jesus simply by waking up every morning and asking that same question. Jesus, I do not know where you are going. How can I know the way? This is also the setup to one of the greatest claims that Jesus makes in Scripture. Responding, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One might argue that Thomas would have been the least likely to be called the doubting disciple. And this is important for us to keep in mind because it means any of us might be able to find ourselves in Thomas's shoes. Let's look at his appearance in our reading from this morning. Now Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into his side, I will never believe. Now, nobody professes their doubts in Jesus quite as publicly as Thomas does, and pretty spectacularly, too. There's an edge to it. There's emotion in it, or maybe more appropriately, an emotional exhaustion to it. It's almost as if Thomas is saying, I just don't have the faith for this anymore. I just can't keep putting myself out there like this. It's too hard. We've got to imagine the toll that those three days took on the disciples, living in fear, disappointment, confusion, and earth-shattering defeat, or so it seemed. What now? We can imagine the disciples collectively asking the same question that Thomas asked chapters earlier. How can we know the way? Now, who knows why Thomas wasn't in the room when Jesus first appeared. But whatever the reason, this is a detail that our gospel's author thought important enough to expand on. In truth, the doubt that Thomas resoundingly expressed had to have been creeping in its way into the gathered disciples, this fledgling church. Yes, Thomas doubted and expressed it. But nobody in the whole of John's gospel professes the truth of Jesus as profoundly as doubting Thomas does, just a few verses later. Here's how it reads. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. Then Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. This is the first and only time in John's gospel that anyone calls Jesus God, theos in Greek. How did it happen? Somehow, Thomas found himself in the room eight days later, within the gathering of disciples, in the church. This is an important aspect of the gospel, and not just some rabbit trail at the end of a long writing project. The church is the context for Thomas's healing, and we all need to know this. The gospel is unbelievable. It is too wonderful. It is perplexing and challenging and hard to wrap our minds around, but it is no less true. People will doubt it. We will find ourselves at times doubting it. 
Even the detail that the disciples still locked the doors eight days after Jesus came tells us that every one of us can expect to share in the fear and doubt like Thomas, which is perhaps why John is urging us to make room for doubters of all kinds here in this foundational fledgling church and in our church today. It's also interesting that Jesus came on the first day of the week, which, again, is John's way of recalling for us the beginning of all things as he recaptures what was lost in creation. But something was still missing. When Thomas, the disciple who was doubting, rejoined the gathered disciples, only then was it that Jesus came back. And John calls this eight days later. In other words, the first day of the new week, of new creation. The church is finally operating as it is meant to when it welcomes doubters into its midst for healing. When the church does this, it doesn't just regain another of its members, but, and this is so important for us to see when it comes to the place of doubt in church, but the church's confession and worship of Jesus as Lord is made all the richer for having made a place for those who find themselves doubting in the church. My Lord and my God. What does this look like? What does it mean to create a place for doubt in the church? I'd like to close with just a few reflections on this. First, and maybe most important, is that this story invites us to face Jesus with our doubts. Now, we can allow our doubts to send us packing while we walk away from Jesus, or we can continue to face him with our doubts. Jesus would beg you to bring your questions, your lacks of confidence, even your hostilities back towards him, the object of your questioning. And I promise you, Jesus can hold up under the scrutiny of our doubts. Again, this is what we see in the character of Thomas, who certainly did not hold back his doubts. I will never believe. But he still found himself in the room where the disciples were, with his doubts. More on this in a moment, but suffice it to say that when your questions, your uncertainties, your skepticisms arise, let us avoid erring by either running away from the object of our doubts or by pretending that they don't exist. Bring them back towards Jesus, who makes himself found normatively in the church. This is how we can find ourselves both doubting Jesus while at the same time still being in a relationship with him. Done this way, this will actually bring us to greater maturity in faith, not because we'll know more content, but because we will know greater closeness with Jesus for the conflict. What direction will you face when doubts arise? Now, there are many tributaries to doubt. Intellectual changes, life circumstances, cultural voices, suffering, wealth. Yet today it is often one's experience of the church, not actually Jesus, that is being doubted, that needs to be doubted when it's not operating in health, distorting Jesus, or injuring its followers. Oftentimes people think they are doubting Jesus when they are really just doubting a particular expression of Christianity. Now, I grew up in a handful of churches where people were lovely and friendly. I went to church quite a bit, probably more than most of you did when you grew up in church. No, I wasn't a pastor's kid, a PK, 
I was an MK. I was a musician's kid. As an MK, you're at the Sunday service, and if there's more than one, you may be at all of them because there's just one choir. And what this means is that I would go on to become an MK plus when I went to boarding school for singing in the church. Six church services a week I sang in for a few years, and I actually really loved it. Making beautiful music became a plausibility structure for the beauty of who God is, and it shaped me as a musician, which I loved. These experiences left me with a set of morals, a strict rubric for living life. Some of them served me well, but I found that they did not leave me in a place of desiring a relationship with Jesus. Faith for me generally meant being a good person according to these morals, which honestly I did not keep in much of a consistent way. But I certainly judged others by whether they also agreed with my definitions, sexual ethics, my particular political hobby horses, even responses to my provocative bumper stickers, which I am now too embarrassed to actually quote back to you. <laughs> if you took issue with any of these things, even though I allegedly believed in openness and diversity, you would either be directly sneered at, or worse, subtly ostracized by me and my companions. Now, I happen to grow up in the progressive church, but I know many of you could use the same exact description of your conservative church experience. Fundamentalism is not a point on the political spectrum. When a, when a particular expression of church becomes louder than the real voice of Jesus, it needs to be doubted. And the church actually needs to be a place where that can happen so that we don't throw out baby Jesus with the bathwater. But the church has caused even greater harm than just distorting the gospel. Thankfully, in my church experience, I never knew abuse or church hurt. But for those of you who have experienced those things, let me say as a member of the clergy, I am so sorry that you've experienced that. This is not really my apology to give, but it is the church's. And so I hope you can hear an apology in part, at least. You should never have had to experience what you have, especially in the name of Jesus. I can think of a few harder things for anyone to grapple with. My hope and my belief is that the church, especially village church, can be a place of healing for you if you will allow it, or if you will continue to allow us to be a part of your story. Whatever your tributaries to doubt, we need to be a part of, of making the church a place where doubts are patiently welcomed and engaged with. This is what the church is meant to be, a hospital for the wounded, wounded by sin, by the devil, even by the church when it has allowed it. Thomas's story encourages us that this invitation is for both the faithful person who has serious reservations and the person outside of faith who's looking in. Both are invited into the room where Jesus meets us all, just as personally and powerfully as he met Thomas. We, the church, are called to make room for those with doubts. This means modeling faith that is not grounded in our intellectual confidence or in our own faith, but rather faith that is grounded in the person of Jesus, who will lead us in all truth. It means that we tell people our stories of how Jesus has met with us, this is what happened to Thomas. Thomas, we love you. 
Let me tell you about something. We have seen the Lord. Maybe Thomas wasn't convinced by his friends' stories, but their stories drew him into the room where he met Jesus again. This means that we must be willing to say, and we are freed to say, I don't know to our friends' questions. This is a big turning point for me in my story. When I brought my pointed, hostile questions about followers of Jesus to a group of fiery followers of Jesus, one from Greenville, South Carolina, who I wound up marrying, I got some good answers. But my assumption had been that if I had made the right challenges, then their faith would have crumbled like a stack of Jenga blocks. And so the most important answer for me to hear was, good question, I don't know and to see how their faith was no less vibrant. This drew me in. I moved from deconstructing my faith to doubting, to learning, to being in the room where it happens, and to meeting Jesus on my own in a life-changing way. Whether it's someone from outside the faith, someone from another faith, someone within our own faith, someone coming to us with doubts needs our presence more than they need our propositions. This doesn't mean we promote a general sense of skepticism, but we do promote an ethos of asking questions because doing so is often exercising the confidence that Jesus stands up to questions. This is why we run Alpha and will continue to do so. This is a particular place to discuss questions about Jesus from any faith background, any experiences and doubts. But Alpha is just a programmatic outworking of a general ethos that we are all called to generally. A reminder that honest and kind engagement with our friends' questions is our modus operandi as apostles, sent ones of Jesus. We don't need to be shocked when questions of doubt arise within our church, within our family, our friends, or within us. John's expectation is that we all might experience them, hence Thomas's appearance. The gospel does bring peace, but it is not comfortable. We are regularly brought to the end of ourselves, faced with big questions, and we doubt along the way as we follow Jesus on the path to the cross. Let us take John's encouragement to honor our doubts, struggles, exhaustions as they come, and let us bring them to Jesus so that he might meet us in their midst. He will lead us through our doubts into even greater worship. Your brothers and sisters in Christ love you because Jesus loves you. And he longs to make an appearance specifically for you where you can expect him to meet you and proclaim shalom, peace to you over and over again. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.